Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Natural High podcast, which is about the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week, I have the great pleasure in speaking to one of the best people I've met in America and indeed in my adult life. From the moment we met, we clicked because Ron Francis has an uber positive mental attitude. He's incredibly charismatic and he's got my back. He's an artist with such a fascinating story to tell and I simply can't wait to delve in. You can check out Ron's life and work at ronfrancisfineart.com and as usual, you can follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone. Enjoy the show. The Natural High. Can you see me? I can see you. Yeah. What's that picture in the background of the lady? The vi- the vibrant looking lady behind you in the picture. Are you talking about that one? Yeah. The woman in the baby blue t-shirt. That That's actually Ron Francis uh, when he had no long hair. No way. And, and, no and way. actually, yeah, hold on. Wow. You see? <laughs> I had very long hair for 23 years. That was painted by one. I have a lot of paintings. This is my, this is my living room, and I collect a lot of, lot of artwork Amazing. by a lot of artists from all over. Yeah. I want to talk about your passion for art, but basically we do business together, and every time we ha- I speak to you on the phone, I'm thinking, when am I going to get Ron Francis on the natural high? Because you're one of the most passionate personas I've ever met. Okay. Well, Before we talk about your art and your life in art, what do you um, what do you make of the current coronavirus pandemic? What's your take on it all? Are we fucked as a human race? Will we learn our lessons? Uh, my 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 core belief is that nature and um, this planet can reset the button because we're a guest here. And if we're gonna go and mess with, whether it be biological warfare or mess with animals that don't belong in people's stomachs um, and, and not taken care of, then natural order or nature will find its way to say, wait a minute here, this is what happens when, when uh, these two things collide. And for me, um, after that, once, once something's born from that entity, um, and then there's obviously the the results or the directions that humans then go, which is an absolute fear and panic. Then all those other things are are individualistic, and they occur per government, per country. But ultimately, where did it start? And it, you know, I'm I don't know. I don't want to start conspiracy theories. I just know that um, animals have always been the carriers of things that can uh, transmit into human bodies and beings to create disease and pandemics and and death uh, and even other things that are great. So when it happens, just remember that we're we're part of this entire picture. Um, So if we don't if we don't, you know, through this learn and then try to find applicable ways to uh, ensure the health of our species that means taking care of them the way that they need to be taken care of. 
well then we're we're not really getting better we're just we're masquerading again with technology or you know coming up with a vaccine is just saying let's make sure the humans feel better but not storing animals or playing with biological biological warfare would be the core reasons in my belief as to what we need to focus on should we be messing with animals in cages at wet markets and should we be messing with animals in bioterrorism war if that were the case as well i don't know which one is which i don't want to get too judgy here but i can't help but you know lace my these questions with my own ideologies but do you think there'll ever be a time in future when we'll look back on the consumption of animals in general and just look at it with disdain and feel detached from those people in history. Well, I think there's a lot of people that already feel that way. Will the masses all together as one unit feel that way? I don't think so. You know, the moment that meat was, from what I understand, the proteins that were brought in from meat into the consumption in the humans, that supposedly those proteins then allow the brain to grow larger and expand into a, a grander territory. I, again, I've just heard stories. I'm not a scientist. Um, I don't think... Uh, utopia of the entire world looking at animals as a cigarette that they're not supposed to touch will ever occur. I think there's always going to be um, in, um, uh, people that prefer one side over the other. And that's what makes that's what makes this whole thing. You know, it's like a light switch is never going to always be on. There's going to be times it will be off. And there's an up and there's a down and there's a left and there's a right, which is tied with Alan Watts. My belief is I tell you what, I've eaten a hell of a lot more salads and just a couple of times a piece of chicken since this whole thing went down. Um, I'm eating a lot more greens and vegetables for sure. That wet market concept of what I saw, you know, and, and videos of these poor creatures stacked on one another and didn't even know that existed was really, really, really bothersome on a traumatic level in my mind on a cellular level that is it as well isn't it sort of ignorance is bliss when it comes to animal products and consumption of because we don't we just see that sort of nicely packaged uh, piece of meat on our plate rather than all of the processes that has to go through in order to get there but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna drag you over the hot coals with regards to your food preferences i want to know in general what you think about the status quo do you think we have the integrity and do you think we have the integrity and the motivation to get out of this current situation? Or do you think that our personal greed, our individual greed and the way that we are programmed means that we are doomed as a human race and that we're, we're now in this irrevocable sixth mass extinction? Do you think we will succeed and do you think we will, the human race will be proliferated or do you think we're really fucked at this point? Ooh, that's a heavy, heavy question. <laughs> uh, you know... Uh, if you know, there's everything's about perception, and if I turn my perception into looking and judging and and analyzing and condoning and 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 and, and history and science, you know, ultimately I'm going to say we're going to be wiped out. You know, if I were to really look at it, I'd say I th I'd say that something else has to happen, and that would have to be a master reset. Um, uh, There's an arrogance on the part of humans, isn't there? We sort of think, oh, we'll be all right, we'll survive, we'll get through this, we're smarter than dinosaurs, we won't become extinct. <laughs> isn't that human to say arrogance is, is a human trait that an animal doesn't have? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. a, a deer a deer, and, and, and an elk run in herds or, you know, together, you, you think they're looking at the front leader going, you know, this guy's got it wrong, I'm going to take a left here and go the other way. I mean, he just sticks it out, you know? <laughs> 
But the the, <laughs> the 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 idea of that one one elk saying, "No, nah, this guy's wrong. I'm going to go this way." You know, that's that's what makes us a little different. We we we, we become arrogant, and that we got this, but it also becomes a part of 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 a human drive as well. You know. Not going to the moon, you know, only comes from someone's arrogant or egoistic concept that we can get to the moon. So uh, if, if we all or enough powers that be align as one unit, like a herd, in the direction that we are causing the earth or this place great harm by our arrogance, if one goes past the other enough, well, then the shift happens. Am I one to call that out and say, you know, it's going to happen? Well, then I'd be saying I believe in utopia. And I, I would love to believe in utopia. I would love to believe that the shift can happen of the masses as one unit going in a direction where everybody's equal and animals have their place and we have ours, but we're all together in this. Yeah, it would be beautiful. Um, it, it would, but I, no, I don't. I look at the the state of play at this point in time and there are so many countries you know, in enmity with other countries. Look at America and China at the moment, all the rhetoric that's going on, Russia. We're still not together, are we, as a, hum as a human race in order to combat this? No, and I don't think that we actually ever have. There's a lot of, um, a lot of things going on that masquerade over it all, you know, the curtain over the wizard. But there's a lot of strings that are absolutely identical uh, from the past hundreds of years ago, whether it be the Greeks or the Romans or, or, you know, the Huns, wherever it is, that disconnect of my belief is over your belief is better than this belief has quantified itself. It's not changed. Um, a lot of it's masqueraded. And yes, there's a lot of people that are not, you know, sloshing in mud in the United States in the streets. And there's technology that are advanced and societies that are growing up. But ultimately, to get that entire utopian concept of everybody like Minority Report on board, you know, that this one belief is the way we all need to stay as one unit. Mm. It's not going to happen. I don't believe it's going to. I don't believe yeah. it's going to happen. Even in this pandemic, it's, it's now been politicized across the board in every other country. Sweden, not just America, but Sweden, Sweden as well. You know, let's let everybody. There's all these different ideas. Wait a minute, guys. This is a pandemic. Look at where it's reached. And everybody's still arguing whose idea is better than the other. It's crazy. I suppose the United Nations is the closest thing we have to a world government, although there are still detractors from the United Nations. But would it be nice to have a world vote on certain matters? Do you think we could somehow pull that together at some stage in future? Or do you think each country will always want to be able to govern their own country and their own people? You know, when it comes to questions of existence, of the proliferation of humankind, surely we should be able to vote as human beings on the way, you know, the way the world moves forward in terms of industry, in terms of culture, in terms of politics, in terms of equality. Should we not have a world vote? Well, on let things? me, let me. Right. So, so, so now you're talking about almost like on Star Trek, where all the interplanetary, you know, dimensions all get together at this, yeah. you know, <laughs> Zoom think tank. And everyone's like, well, what's good of the universe? So it wasn't, or to my understanding, wasn't the United Nations supposed to be made up of that almost that idea that each person is each nation is to keep each other every other nation in sync and yet we went to you know just as an example from what i understand from movies and literature and newspapers did not the united states go to war at one point for wnds that were never found 
And didn't thousands and thousands of people's lives get lost and a country get blamed for the involvement of 9-11, which had nothing to do with it? And, and the United Nations did not in any shape or form keep that country in, in order and, and condone that only, other than a verbal you know, note or, or a movie that says they never should have. We should have, like other countries, paid prices like you know, the, uh, the ethnic cleansing in, uh, in, in, um, in uh, um, Serbia. And Kosovo and Serbia and Kosovo, I mean, war crimes were put under that that guy. You know why? Why, on the other hand, this country, certain people were not drawn up for war crimes. If we went to a place for the wrong reasons without proof and did it, so there is that thing that you're talking about. So wasn't the United Nations supposed to be that entity that you just spoke of that's supposed to keep things in sync for 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 the world for this planet, or, or is it only that? Right. Or is it they only have those votes based on the amount of, from what I understand now, is that the United States contributed unsurmountable amount of money to the United Nations. So it looked like by the amount that we gave was the, the, the means we were not looked at as much as, say, a country that didn't give as much. Right. That's pretty bad. So it comes down it? to money. That's, that's, so it comes down to money then. That's exactly You're above right. the law if you've got enough right. cash. So there you go. Now, now, now you wonder about a small country who's really hurting, who got really hurt, and they're being judged, or leaders being judged by that entity only because they only gave a thousand, where the United States gave a million. Now you wonder why, you know, everyone's eyes would be on that country and criticize and, and start to have that idea in their bodies. Like, oh, if we've got money, we're of value. If we don't have money, we have less value. That runs across the board, across every nation in the, in the world. And yet here we're talking about utopia of everybody having to feel like they're equal because actually we are as one single unit, the same organism. So true. So, so we're fucked then. The human race is fucked. Can we agree on that and just and move on next subject? Yeah, we, we can agree on that. But then I, I don't want to be an Anthony Bourdain either. You know, I don't want to have that concept, right? You know, go out there after this interview and say, you know what, we're fucked. What should I be here for anymore? <laughs> the, the issue is, really comes down to the micro and the macro. In the macro, with big corporations, they're not motivated to make the big changes, the changes that are required at this point in time. And in the micro, we're not doing enough to change our ways, are we, in terms of living in a more sustainable fashion? Uh, it is, and, and unfortunately, people, uh, I don't believe in the general consensus that that's the distraction. That's the complete and utter distraction. It's a loss of of, of love of self. It's a loss of love of finding something you love to do and staying with it no matter what. And the replacement of not knowing what that is with shiny stuff. When we talk about corporations as though they're people, you almost say corporation like a noun, like it's a person. And that's what it's become. And when you find out that that entity, corporation, is this massive machine, this massive gear in the operation, that, that, that literally almost has become the drive, then everything follows suit. It's like, it's like a dog sled on the peak of a mountain. If we go out and do the research like Aaron Brockovich did and find out that, you know, retaining water is poisoning the earth, which poisons the faucets, which poisons the people, and someone tries to shove that shit under the carpet and people are dying because of it and they win some money, that makes it all right. So they'll go buy another retention pond in some other location and do it again. Or the fact that they're even open. 
that they could even stay open. They still are open, PPE. They're still there. Are you kidding me? And it's happening with the air, with the earth. These are corporations. That's just in the energy field. I mean, Exxon Valdez. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about getting away with doing the wrong thing. Right, but let's 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 talk about it in the sense of, say, my format, right? If I start judging the very thing that I have an opinion on, corporations, or someone might want to call that ultra wealthy, whether it be the entity that started the corporation or people that run it, then the person who actually might be one of my clients owns that corporation and that person's paid me to do work that I do, well then I'm complaining about the very person who's feeding my plate, which means you look at that and you're like, wait a minute, are you willing yeah. Are you willing to stop eating? You know, how far are you willing to go? Well, I'm not. Mm. <laughs> so that makes me, mm. you know, call, you know, some artists might call me a sellout. I don't know. I, I love what I, I do and I have a certain client base that make a certain amount of money off a certain machine or a certain system and I'm very grateful for that. Does that make me part of that broken system? Or is that system the one that's supposed to work until you say 100 years, we're all wiped out? No, because my family eats and I have things that I like that might be shiny and I drive things that work and aren't broken down and I have food in my belly based on the money I'm earning from the person who owns shares in that corporation or even started it. Uh, that would be a very bad thing for me to judge that but if I look at it as a whole, you know, am I partake? Am I partaking in that cycle? I think that I am. Same. We all are. We all are. We can moan about it, but we all are. Tell me about your passions. Why are you so into art? What does it get you out of bed in the morning? And how did you get into it in the first place? You know, I, I'm not a blue chip artist, so I'm just going to say that I'm a creative. So an artist is a pretty big title that the public gets to give. So I'm just going to say I'm a creative and I've been creative and imaginative my whole life. So getting up, you know, as a kid, I'm kind of doing the same thing now. And that's I have an idea and um, I'm not really pleased unless the idea comes out so I can see it in the material world where I wind up kind of mad in my head. And then when it comes out into the world, um, I feel like I have a duty or I feel like I have to share it because if I'm not, then it's kind of like the tree in the forest that falls. If no one's there, did it really fall? So there's this commitment I have to... Does it come down to a need for creativity? Is that the root of it, that you feel the need to be creative? I, I, that's not a need. It's almost like it's almost like a natural... It's a natural feeling in me. I, it's not... I don't wake up mm. needing it. I just wake up... I wake up creating. Um, being it. I'm being. Yeah, I wake up and there's an idea that just can come. It comes from some very quiet... Um, place so i'm not i'm not mad in my head i just um the imagination kind of goes to a very massive place like like um all this debris that goes around the globe you know imagine all this debris that's going around inside and then out of nowhere this one thing will come into my head and oh that's that's I, that's something i gotta try and um that's been that's been since my childhood you know I don't kind of see things the way they are. I had a show once called Toys or Tools because the idea was um, I took toys at a very early age, like a tricycle or a bow and arrow with suction cups or baseball cards. And I never used that toy um, for what its purpose was or what it was made for for that purpose. So a tricycle you're supposed to ride. And I turned the tricycle upside down <clears throat> and I turned the wheel 
And out of nowhere, I'm going, ice cream, ice cream, who wants ice cream? No idea where that came from. Then I took bow and arrow with suction cups, and instead of shooting the target, I shot it straight in the air and just ran around the yard waiting for the arrow to shoot me in the head. But the excitement and the elation, so here I am not shooting the target. So I had this art show that questioned, you know, was it a toy or was it a tool? That idea, not just back then when I was doing silly things, as someone might call it, that idea as to why I was doing that was the bigger question. Where did that come from? The idea was, was that in my cellular memories? Was that something that my father did or my mother did? Was that something I saw in my subconscious? Was I trying to bring it out in the material world? So there's this great show, that art show that I had called Toys or Tools. So I, I would show the picture of the toy, but then I gave directions, almost like directions on the back of a box, how to use that toy my way. So I wrote it out on, on, that, on that art piece and had a show. As a child. Yes. So I took a, a wagon, and instead of riding people with my wagon, I took my wagon, went and picked cardboard boxes up, formed the cardboard boxes the shape of a school bus, used my mother's cellophane wrap to make windows, and my mother's steak knife to cut a door, painted the box yellow, and then charged kids 50 cents to ride them around the block in the now simulated school bus. And we, I called that painting. I, I painted my rendition of that and called it Creative Businessman. So somewhere, not only was I artistic or imaginative, but I was creating a business from my imagination, almost like Disney, per se. You know, an idea would come to... Wow. So you're always destined for it. What's the most amazing thing you've ever created? And what's the most amazing thing you've ever seen created? Oh, my goodness. Wow. I know. I should have given you these questions in advance, shouldn't I? Wow. <laughs> you're just such a busy man. I just tied you down whenever I can. Wow. So... You don't have to answer if you if nothing comes to mind, maybe later I, on in the call. No, I, I would say I, I'm a, a huge fan of um, architecture and and decorative objects and elements. When it comes to paintings and museums and art, I'm fascinated by the different styles and emotions I feel when standing in front of a sculpture or a painting or a photograph. But some of the most impressive things that I've seen in all made would probably be um, some of these calendars and clocks made that I've seen in Copenhagen palaces and in Museum of Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, these decorative objects that the wealthy back then would have in their estate homes or their castles that were telling, Ornaments. yeah, the, the astrological clocks, you know, these, like, or these okay. um, music boxes, like these massive dressers with, clocks and 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 the work not just not just their use but the craft in how they built them the methodical attention yeah. to detail mm -hmm. and size and scale without modern technology yes right that's exactly right no no autocad no macintosh no laser cutters all with the human hand and mind together symbiotically so that that would be my most impressive some of my most impressive thing is beyond, say, the, the, you know, the pyramids and a lot of the Egyptian stuff that I find just from another world because I've been to the pyramids and it's just another subject. Um, when it comes to my own thing, the most amazing thing created, believe it or not, I'm not I, would, I would probably say it's not 
it's not say an object, but a direction. And that is the switching of the dynamic of my thinking um, from being lost in the depths of alcoholism and addiction to uh, a very, very dark and long period of my life to having the ability to finally, from outside of myself, reach this connection of something greater than me to redirect my life and start to be what I was born to actually be. Wow. So um, I don't want to get choked up, man, but I would really say that it would be to have the, the blessings of to be able to live my life instead of wanting to be dead, to just wanting to be alive and finding that thing that was given to me um, when I was brought into this world that I tuned in with, that creative, that creative imagination and generosity to give, to be able to tune back into that, to at least have some piece of mind and love for the world by sharing what I'm able to create. So it would be a, another identity that I'm no longer chained to. I'm no longer chained to that, that dark concept of life that I have to be completely disconnected and high and drunk and trashed and not have any values to then turning around my life. So that would be bigger than that's, any object. That's absolutely amazing. I, I, but it just, you know, that person that you're describing doesn't tally with me because I've known you for a couple of years now and you're just one of the most, you're the, per, the, I think one of the reasons we get on so well is because you just have such a positive mental attitude. You're a can-do person and yeah, just your passion. It, it, it's, you can see your passion for a mile off, the way that you describe things, the way that you, you can see your motivation for the life and stuff around you. And that, the, the, the alcoholism, yeah, I just, it just doesn't tally with me. I can't see that person. What, made, what, what brought you out of that? It was like 25 years ago, right? Uh, September 19th, 1999 was the last, the last thing I ever put into my body wow. that disconnected. So 20 years of, of sobriety and abstinence. How did you get the drive to come out of that period? Well, when, when you take a human body like, like mine, a, a body physically, mentally, and emotionally to the brink of self-destruction, um, it's either going to just go away <laughs> and, go, and just go into the ground mm. or somehow, some way, something happens uh, where there's this shimmer of light or thought that that it's a thread that gets held onto where you have some sort of like change in thinking. And it's it's actually, even though it might be slight, it's the biggest change you ever experience. It's like, maybe I have a problem. And when that thought is strong enough that you go a day um, without what you're normally consuming every day um, and you're still alive, and want to be, there's hope starts to take control and you start looking up and saying, please help me, you know, and you ask for help and, and I don't know how to do this and please help me. And you just keep sharing and keep talking and keep opening up. And, um, that, that monumentally was probably, you know, how it happened was that, um, you know, when I, that last moment, it was a very dark moment, almost took my life. I had that thought, you know, maybe I have a problem. And then uh, 
I went someplace and people started to share. And um, when they did, uh, there were some parallels and I didn't see how that was possible. So instead of knowing it all, I submitted everything and that maybe I don't know anything at all. Was it mainly booze? Yes, it was alcohol predominantly. But there were other many things along the way that I had experimented with. Um, but alcohol was predominantly there every day for 17 years, every single day. Consumption, you know, be a little, could be a lot, could be like astronomical amounts, but it was always there. And it happened at the age of 17 was my first drink. And uh, it was with my first girlfriend on the beach. And um, I was forbidden to, to, to take drugs or alcohol by my family because there was a, a lineage of alcoholics. And there was this, uh, my father and mother's experience, right. th they did not drink really ever. And their experience of their mother and father was also alcoholism. So we got a, a word of that. And I also saw my, my grandmother, uh, a complete shattered drunk. So there was a, an incredible fear of alcohol and drinking and a lot of other things. I had a lot of fear, but I had a lot of deep-rooted traumas that nobody knew about early on that not even my parents knew of and abuse and bullying and things like that. So one day with this girlfriend on the beach, you know, I heard that she was, you know, I heard that she could have fun. You know, well, the night I picked her up in my car, my 1965 Ford Falcon, she wanted to get some beer. And I, you know, did not have the courage to say, I don't drink. I said, okay, I found a way to get some, a case of Rolling Rock beer illegally, you know, because I wasn't of age. I was, you know, which was kind of simple back then. And especially with the place that she told me to go to. And then we went down to the beach. And I remember the it was dark, and I remember she was sucking them things down, and I could see her change of attitude. But I was actually sipping the rolling rock and putting my tongue on the cap so no beer was going down my throat, and I would throw the bottle like 30 feet behind me so she didn't know I wasn't <laughs> drinking. I was just scared to death. But uh, as she drank more, mm. she loosened up more, and I thought, wait a minute. Does that do that? I don't see anything. She's not falling over. She's getting kind of fun, funner, or whatever is my words. Or my. Mm. So I let some of that rolling rock go down. And I got to tell you, man, like three, four sips, that was it. <laughs> that was, that Popeye. was it. Popeye. That's right. Popeye, Brutus, combined Godzilla, you name it. But I don't remember yeah. anything from that night. I blacked out. All I remember is throwing up on my father at 17 when I got home. And I remember some horrible physical things going on. And I was out of the house. I was, you know, for me, it was not too long after that. I was out. I never went back. And I went to the. Why? Kicked out? Yeah, I kicked out college. It was it was time for me to go. And, uh, and I went. I, did, I became yeah. disobedient. The grades dropped. The attitude changed. Uh, the arrogance, everything, everything just changed. And that feeling that I had when I was drinking was too good to turn away. And, uh, you know, what an advert for rolling roll. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've woken up. Anyway, yeah. because it's so socially accepted alcohol, you probably just went along with it for a long time. It, you know, it was a it was a component and a companion in your life. And you didn't question it for a long time because it, you felt as if you were in control of it or it didn't even question whether you're in control of it or not. hundred percent. You're absolutely right. I surrounded myself with like-minded people. They drank. We got drunk. We got stupid, right? You know, everybody would then tell stories about Ron the next day. So 
I became, you know, the, the Hollywood star. You know, I was, you know, throwing things off roofs, riding on the top of cars. I was a daredevil and realized that I had the bravery with the alcohol in me to do these stupid things. But then I had the attention the next day of doing those stupid things. So it was this cycle of like, I was the clown. I was funny. I was crazy. I was womanizer. I was free, you know, daredevil. I squandered mm. through Europe, mm. backpack, and you name it. So I saw myself as a successful drunk. I was functioning after a certain period of time. And, but really when it started to get bad is when, you know, other things were introduced and then I'd wake up in places that was just not the right place to be and no money and jail cells and car accidents. And wow. Oh my yeah. God. This feels like it should be a six hour podcast. I want to just pause you for one second. Okay. Because you, you seem to be very much like an extrovert and maybe people always say that I'm an extrovert as well. But for me, my life experience is about if I'm trying to, if I'm going to boil it down, a lot of the time it's about levels of awkwardness socially and I think because I've, you know, struggled with alcohol at times in my life as well, and I've had long hiatuses without alcohol, I've felt much better. But I think, you know, when you think about alcohol, it's about losing those inhibitions, isn't it? Losing that awkwardness with people around you. When you drink, you don't feel in any way awkward. You have to sense that shame and that guilt afterwards when you've got the hangover. But during, in the moment... You, as you said, you feel like a million bucks, like you can talk to anyone. You feel you don't feel any awkwardness. Right. It's, it's an elixir. It became an elixir. I was I was bullied up until I had that first drink. I was closed. I was alone. I was doing things creatively by myself. I didn't talk to people. I had very little friends. I set myself aside and didn't think I was good enough. So all of the isms were long before the alcohol. I already had the, the shit in me. I already had that ism in me. I already mm. had the, the stuff. The moment the alcohol hit, it was but the symptom of the problem. I was the problem before the alcohol. The alcohol got in and made me feel like I had no problems. I wasn't the problem. You know, I was mm. cool. I was this. I was that. And, you know, you do that enough times and it's like it becomes an extension. It becomes an appendage. You know, but what happens is I, I wound up with nothing. I wound up nowhere. I wound up alone. I wound up empty. I wound up guilt. I wound up shamed. I wound up with a record. I wound up with injuries. I had 11 broken bones in my body, 700 stitches, a fractured jaw, steel pinned in my left leg, arrested for attempted murder, never convicted. But I mean, I was wanted in you, you, you name it. I mean, I was, you know, the, the stuff and the, and the horrible, horrible. And I'm not that way. I had nothing on my last drink. I had no money in my pocket, no in my bank account, wanted in three states. I was behind rent by three months, electric by two. The girl I was with for two years upped and left and disappeared. I was alone, over, just like before, just again. No wow. goals, no nothing. I always say to people, if you want to sort out the problems in your life, just stop drinking and everything will fall into place. It always happens for me. Whenever I give up drinking for a long period of time, the bar, my life bar, just sort of raises almost indiscernibly every day. But the bar just gets higher. You know, I start flossing my teeth every day and just little, you know, rituals like that come into my life where I'm actually looking after myself more. And I, every day is a productive day rather than every other day being a productive day. Right, but did you just hear yourself? You're so funny. You just, you're so funny. You just said, I floss my teeth every day, right? It's like, hey, <laughs> hey, and guess what, Oliver? I balance my checkbook. 
all of a sudden we want to pat on the back for a normal life thing. See, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. That's the problem. I'm, I'm, I am and always will be while I'm in recovery, but I am that, which means I have a miscued thinking when that stuff hits my system. And that miscued thinking says, you don't have a problem. You're really good at this. Keep going. But when yeah, I stop yeah. and I take it away, I'm left with flossing my teeth and balancing my checkbook. And then, the ner- <laughs> you know, now I'm OK with it now. But I can assure you when it first started, I'm like, I got to do what? Are you kidding me? I got to grow mm. up. I stopped growing emotionally at 17. I stopped, mm. you know. And, and after all this time, do you still have cravings uh, and do no, you feel happier no. over, overall? I, I, I do not have cravings. And. To say, do I, I feel happier overall? I have um, my worst sober day, okay, is a hundred times better than my best day drunk. Wow. Because even though my worst day sober feels like all hopes are gone, I have, wow. I have a choice. Amazing. I have a choice. Back then, that best day, that alcohol still had me. I didn't, I, I, in my mind, had to have that drink to make the next choice, to make the next messed up decision or not. Yeah. So uh, not having that ball and chain. And again, you know, it's doing, you know, the, it, you know, the, the it's doing, it's doing push-ups. It's ready for me to, you know, it's it's waiting for me to have that. Nah, you weren't so bad. Have yes. a drink. It's been twenty years. The devil on your shoulder. You know, and then, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like my dad said, it's so funny. You know, my father meant. You know, my father told that story about the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other, and you know, metaphorically, it's it's really, really funny. But that that's exactly it. It's the Jekyll and Hyde, man. It's. You know, take the sip and that, there you go. You're off Well, in the beginning. The day that you drink alcohol again, you, the next morning you'll be back to zero. All of those years of building that you have done in the interim, that you've built so much, you'll be back to zero the day that you start drinking again. The next morning you wake up, you'll be like, I'm starting with nothing again. But instead you've built up 20 years of abstinence, sobriety, and you're the healthiest looking middle-aged man I've ever seen. Would we even call you middle-aged? I mean, how old are you? I don't know. I- I know how old I am. I don't know if that's called middle age. I'm 54. 54. And you're incredibly healthy and vivacious. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you very much. You're like this, you know, you're like a George Clooney, basically. You've got this. <laughs> oh, God. You've, you've come into your absolute prime in your 50s. And now, like, every woman wants you, right? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm I not letting my wife anywhere near you. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny you're funny so do you have any vices these days is 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 your work your vice and food and things like that uh my, my work is probably my my biggest my work in my mind you know i i tend to be my my own worst enemy uh when it comes to self-criticism or self-deprecation um where i even even perceive others think that same thing of me I don't know why that's there. It's it's an ongoing battle and an ongoing ongoing journey. I'm trying to better myself with and and seek outside help that can point out perhaps you know on a cellular level why these things bubble up and I believe them. 
um, it's a cognitive distortion. It's, it's, um, so the vice, when I work, I feel when I'm working, that is way lower. And in most cases, not even prevalent when I'm so in tune with material and application mm -hmm. and a goal, I'm no longer connected again. Look at that. Right. So alcohol was the same, right? So now I do all this detailed work and I'm, I'm in it and I'm energetic and I'm passionate and I'm going and I can't wait. And right. Am I thinking of like, wow, am I, do I look old or, or, you know, does that person like me? You know, I'm not there, you know, or put me in that coffee shop and we start conversing mm -hmm. and I'll leave the coffee shop. Like, was I too much? You know, this thought, you know, like the self-criticism don't know where that comes but from. Your reputation, your identity is very much in your work, isn't it? So I suppose it's like your fallback, like even if you don't care so much what people think about you, you care about what people think about your work and your art. Um, well, um, having the acceptance of my peers within my, within, my, within my field is really important to me because I find, you know, I don't look at someone who I perceive as better than me as an enemy. I look at someone who may be better than me or I perceive as better than me as a challenge for me to challenge myself. It's like the old Zen thing, you know, sad is the student who never surpasses his master. Right. So I want to become a master at what I'm doing. So the only way to do that is to find the best one that I can find in my life that I can perceive as the best and then try to not copy that person, but go above it with my own self into it. So some people apply plaster to the walls all day long and they become the best at that. And maybe I want to do a tabletop kind of thing. So and I don't come up with the tabletop idea because that person hasn't. It seems to just come to me from a place you know, of, of imagination of like, well, that seems like it would be a cool thing. And by doing that, it's really strange. I wind up learning more about the material, which then sets me aside in this other bracket with my peers where they now know me because of that. I don't know how that happened. And I, and I, I like to be there, but I don't do it to make someone happy. And I don't, even though I'm gratified that they are, my drive comes from this inner place of like, I just want to be a master. I want to, I want to, I want to be really good. And, and I guess I'm judging myself again, and that becomes part of the drive. So maybe if I'm self-critical often, I will always, I don't want to be there, so let me be here, you know? Oh, and there, now, well, let me go here. And that really is a big difference between you and me. Like, you, you, you're into mastery. You're obsessive about understanding and getting under the skin of a subject. I'm very much a cut corner sort of person, but you, you know, painstakingly understand and master materials and, and artistic techniques. So when you talk about mastery and masters, who do you aspire to? Who's given you most joy in the art world and who's, what level of mastery and artistry do you, do you aspire to? Is there anybody in particular, an influencer over time that you've really been um, driven by? You know, it's really, it's, there's so many that, that, um, you know, it's, it's, the contrast is crazy. You know, Walt Disney for me, you know, people are going to laugh, but Walt Disney has, has, there's an empire based on a mouse, the imagination, you know, and then, then you've got Michelangelo, who's one of my favorite, you know, and, and Leonardo da Vinci, the, the, the masters of masters in Caravaggio. And I, when I was in Florence looking at those, you know, the architecture, the inventions. Da Vinci is yeah. an incredible guy. Yes, you know, and that that's that's the old school. But then then I've got artists that are next to me only half a mile from my studio. You know, there's Dominique Labouvet, who's, you know, just an incredible artist, sculptor, human, 
um, expression, everything about him, I, I enjoy being around. His challenges, his critiques, his blatant honesty, and his wife, Erica Snyder of Blue Ossier, they're, they're massive people in my life that mean the world to me, have challenged me and put me in my place. And, and I love that. Um, they don't have to be blue chip artists. Again, if I choose particular artists to look at their work, it's how it moves me, which is completely different from someone else. Um, but mastery, mastery is really about the execution of a material, you know, I mean, David, you know, <laughs> David and Florence. Like, Is it about form or is it about concept? Is it about what it means or is it about the actual physical shape, the aesthetic pleasure? I, I think it's the concept in my mind of the impossibility of shaping something or doing something with material that blows me away. Architects like Hadid, you know, the, the female architect who passed away at the age of 60 or something. Um, what's her first name? Um, Hadid, Zaha Hadid, incredible female architect who's bent and twisted buildings that look like they're, you know, you know, water in water, you know, combined with technology. It's like bending of the mind and math who winds up being what is going to be in the future presently. You know, that kind of bending materials and shaping material and things that can, can supposedly could not be done, you know? Um, that that's that's something that I look up to. Yeah, that's genuinely impressive art. You know, there is an art snobbery, isn't there, where there are certain pieces of art that you're supposed to like. You're told you've got to like this, even though it doesn't really strike you. You don't. You feel maybe a bit stupid. You don't understand it. You know, the art that I really love is stuff which is genuinely spectacular rather than having some hidden understated meaning which I'm supposed to understand and I'm supposed to love this piece of art because I'm told it's you know incredible I much prefer just to be literally struck essentially struck by a piece of art yeah that's that's I think art is is subjective for each individual um but like let's take the Barnes collection in Philadelphia and the Barnes Museum which was not supposed to be in that museum but it is but the work in that museum, you know, card players, I mean, and, and, and Monet and Modigliani and Picasso. I mean, the, the masters that this Barnesman collected. For me, for me, the way that Barnes displayed, collected, uh, showed uh, his eye was, is almost more impressive as a whole than one singular masterpiece that's actually in there, even though you know, uh, those artists, Monet, Modigliani, and so on, Picasso, uh, are masters of their own right. The way that Barnes himself, that's what was more impressive to me, is how that man put that collection together in one place. That, 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 that is, like, that's impressive to me. Why? Because there's such coherence in the collection? Uh, yes, the, you, you see, like, knobs or armor that he collected next to a particular painting and the symmetry of two objects instead of one. And like, I got to know Barnes, but I got to see a Monet, you know, I got to see the Modigliani. The Modigliani was, you know, the most people back in his time was just a drunk, you know, but there was this, anyway, so I, there's, there's so many, and I say Disney and people would giggle, but you know, for a single mouse to become <laughs> globally known, you know, and see what's born from that imagination 
you know, in the animation at that time in the stories to where it is now is, is just incredible. That's He's, creativity. You know, the, yeah, yes. I, I typed in California yeah. into the and Google said, yesterday, yeah. and, and one of the first things that came up was Disney World. It's an icon of America, isn't it? Disney World is an icon of America. It's one of the first things that people associate with America. It is. I, I concur. Which, remember, is now a distraction. It's a just Right, but it's a distraction. So the attraction is the distraction. See? So, mm. you know, when you say Disney's, you know, related to America, just think. Shiny things, shiny keys, distraction yeah. mm. is the attraction. And mm. when you bite into the human psyche and you start to distract, there's control that starts to come with that. Oh, we've got them under control, and there you go. So even though Disney I'm talking about in an imaginative level, I'm, I don't even want to say that I'm impressed with the distraction, okay? I'm impressed with a mouse, you know, went from an animated cartoon to this city, to the monorails, and this advanced way of imagining life in general, utopia, you know, <laughs> um, and the grounds and the cleanliness. Yeah, it's a really good point. When we think about, you know, the associations of America, for me, when I was growing up in the 80s, America had really positive associations. And all of that has come from, when I think about it, it all comes from art and creativity and entertainment. You know, like sports stars that were very, we aspired to, TV and film in the 80s was so aspirational. And, you know, like the Eddie Murphy films, for example, everybody wanted a piece of America. Well, I, I concur, and I, I believe that, but I also believe the only reason why that was the image that many had of, the, of America is because it was a melting pot of minds and ethnicities from all over the world. You could come to the United States, mm. find a Romanian you know, uh, a Jew, a Christian, an atheist, uh, 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 African-American. You could find, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or a racial Georgian man, or you could find a, you know, sophisticated New Yorker. And it was all in this one place. And all of this stuff was happening, ideas and motion and technology. And I believe that that's happened because there was a collective, you know, place of all of these great minds that could come to and be free and, and invent and, and, and nowhere in the world could you pull out a business card from a printing shop and go, Joe Blow the painter, and the next day you're painting someone's house and now you got another one the week after. I mean, there was no other place in the world that you could do that. I lived in Germany, I lived in Hungary, I've been in Greece, I've lived in the Isles. I've, I, I don't recall ever having that sense of, I, I have an idea, let me make this come to life. You know. And it happens, yeah. I mean, there there is a craft in Europe. A in Europe, there's, uh, you know, Europe and all over, you know, other than America, there was this much longer tradition of how you could become a painter. You know, you, you had to master an apprenticeship. Of course, that was an American way as well. But again, you know, there was a lot more history and this was a new place of all these collective minds and even angry ones as well that, that said that it was their country all the way back to the gangs of New York. When you watch the Scorsese film, I mean, who were those gangs, you know, not wanting the, the Polish people and the Irish people to enter into what they called their country? Who were they? And believe it or not, they're still here. I don't know where they are, but we see now more prevalent that though that mentality is still here. As you say, America should be celebrated for its cosmopolitan nature. But we look in the news at the moment and we see how much America is struggling with individual cases of blatant racism and brutality. Absolutely. If, if I tell you, 
and I tell my peers, we'll say I have 3,000 friends within this business, that I can provide you with work, but I don't want you to like these 23 people on Instagram or support them or buy their tools, but I'll get all of you 3,000 work, you know, like me, right? A lot of people will follow. Yeah, yeah, very true. Especially if they lack, especially if they lack their own, almost their own substance to where they have to look outside themselves to look up to someone else to become the drive. And then that person becomes your voice. And then those things you wanted that you could never have because you were in the closet is now getting those things for you. That person could fail profusely, but that is now the underdog that you're going to back even if it's losing, no matter what, at the cost of everything. Yeah. Um, I, I totally sense that that sense of opportunity that you're talking about. Like I've always felt that since I've been in America for three years, I've always felt that as long as I've got a positive attitude and I'm an honest person, that their work will always be provided for me. But for me, like America's got so many amazing things about it and so many awful things about it. Do you think a lot of the awful things can be remedied by a change of, of government? Um, so there's, there's a lot of things, you know, there's never one thing that can create a shift. Um, do I believe that American can be what it was? That that would be kind of going back in time. Do I believe as as the whole? What was it? Well, it was united we stand, divided we fall. And right now we are as divided as, as I can remember at 54. I don't ever remember feeling this divided and, and actually seeing okay. it. You know, technology plays a huge role. So you can pop on your phone at any given point or an article is going to show up. Like, let's just take the case of the guy that was just now that, you know, killed by the police officer because he put his knee on his neck. You know, I can see that the, almost a minute after it's happening or in the moment, in real time. So we're quantifying with technology the immediate, the immediate optics by which we experience things that we may have never experienced unless it was put into the newspaper or the television. And the fact that we're all experiencing it all at once and now we all have these different opinions, it's getting really ugly out there. You know, because it's an us and them thing. Now it's us against the police. It's not supposed to. Isn't there more accountability because of the technology that's available? Of course, that's a, a big side of it. Now someone was fired. You know, yes. Now there's an accountability to the department in general. Yes, there is an But that's one form of technology, which is the greatness. Accountability, immediacy, you know, able to transport, you know, information, you know, emergencies. Yes, fantastic. But in the same time, if you have a set of people, and I don't know who they are or where they are, or what demographic they fill, that are way down in this dark area, right? And all of a sudden, they see that, and it's what they actually believe should be happening, meaning the guy on the ground should be dying, and they're coming to the surface as well. It's like it's like a civil war. You know, ethnic cleansing for some... For it just seems like he's, he's alienating America from, from other, other countries rather than bringing it together and making it aspirational like it used to be. That's right. Well, that might not be the entire following of that individual or that president, you know, that we're talking of. I won't say his name. If that's, that, that's mm -hmm. the crowd and that's what he's bringing up to the surface, right? It doesn't mean that that's what everyone is choosing him for. But if you get that many right? Coming up and bubbling to the surface because that's now the cheerleader who supports those beliefs of, you know, racism, inequalities, injustices, right? And that, and that the person might be, you know, you know, white power or what have you. 
and you've got a spokesperson in the highest office of the land, you know, not really condoning it. You've got your own cheerleader in the highest place of the land. It's coming to the surface and it's coming hard and fast. And if powers that be are getting what they want, that don't believe in that, but they're getting their, what they want with that momentum, right? That means the votes and the power, and they're keeping their mouths shut because they're getting what they want. You're doubling down on that very mechanic. That is petrifying because we know in other areas of the world where that worked and we saw what happened and the conclusion of that mechanic. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Instill fear and say that you're going to cheer for them so that they don't have to be in fear anymore and they will follow. And when they do and that shift becomes imbalanced, there's no going back. If we start stoking you know, those coals of inequalities, racism and rights and, and wealth and power based on position where they're yielding things and, and instilling fear in territories of voter fraud and election fraud and mail-in ballots and a certain race is gonna take this from you and people start to believe that and that number becomes greater or at a point where that power becomes a power that itself in itself can go against the others. That is of great calamity for everyone across the board. And that falls true for the pandemic. You have too many people believing that animals should be treated that way. Well, look what happened, <laughs> saying it's okay. I mean, the wet markets were born from people who couldn't eat, from a government that controlled how their people could eat to the point where people just started to basically eat their guts their feet, you know, to survive only to find out that that many people eating that many animals became a business. And then the government takes it back and makes it a business. Holy moly, what a shift, right? Right? And then that, and then that, then that form without regulation becomes a disease. It's the same thing with what I just said in a political level. This becomes a disease. Matrix said it, you humans, you, you multiply, you consume things. Remember that scene? He wiped the sweat off of his forehead. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what's happening. Things are multiplying. Yes. And there's a. I mean, yeah, absolutely. If you move backwards enough, far enough from the, uh, the earth, we'll look like ants just moving around the earth. And then you go further back and it's just like an apple rotting, really, isn't it? We're just the mold on the apple. Absolutely. You just keep going further back and we're just a speck in something way bigger than we could ever fathom. And. When you, when you take off on a plane, you're in a plane and that's really big. And then you take off on a plane and then, you know, you see a building that looks smaller than that plane because you're up high. Your perspective starts to change completely. And, you know, uh, in, this, in this moment and time, um, if, if things do not recalibrate themselves shortly and, and listen, I, I don't, I quite honestly don't believe in any particular color when it comes to to politics, you know, I, I believe in, in harmony and I believe harmony comes from the collective consciousness of many opinions combined to then reach the betterment of humanity in general. It cannot come from just completely red or completely blue or completely corporations. It's got to come from, you know, that, that you know, what works for everybody. And, and even that's utopia, but we're in this together. Or we, we're just going to off each other, and that'll be the end. And this will be a story in some 
you know, caveman like book in the future, you know, <laughs> wondering, well, we'll try, we'll try not to do that again, you know, and I, I think it's only going to be when that, that little part of the brain is clipped off of, you know, fight or flight, you know, that, that, that concept of like, it's about survival. It's not supposed to be about survival. It's supposed to be about living. If you're not living fearlessly without fear, then, then something's driving you. And what I thought was to drive a person now being sober was what that innate gift that you have was to then share that with everybody. I mean, share it till your knuckles bleed and your knees are scratched. It's beneficial to the masses, a few, you know, because then it's not it's not a gift. It's a tool to benefit. It's, it's sharing is the ultimate Joy, service. So, um, giving is almost a selfish act because you feel so good when you do something altruistic, don't you? It <laughs> makes you feel so good. Yes. It needs to be. It needs to be sold more like that because it is actually selfish. It makes it improves your self esteem doing nice right, things for other people. Right. So there you go. Like now you got me with that question. Did I give? Because I feel really good from giving. I got to be careful of that. I. That's a scary thing. I don't. I don't know. I I don't know. I have to ask myself that question. Have I given to get this good feeling? That's that's a that's a really. It doesn't matter as long as you're giving. That's all well, that matters. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I hear you. As long as I'm giving, but my motive better be clean. You know, I want it to be clean. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a completely random question to finish off. What's the strangest thing you've ever seen? Oh wow. The strangest thing. I've ever seen something which defied physics or something which really struck you at the time, which was just so strange. Oof. Wow. You know, growing up as a kid on um, science and, and um, maps and the world really, I had a shortwave radio, you know, I remember hearing the word tsunami. I lived on, on the Jersey shore and I remember hearing the word tsunami very early on and, you see these waves and you were told about these like things, right? These waves. Um, but really I, I, I have been, I had an obsession of watching and still do watching the, the tsunami in Japan. How something underneath the earth cracked <laughs> that created this effect and watched how mother nature just took out every single solitary mechanical, natural, man-made, homemade, you know, earth-made and wiped it out. That type of power and one of the most impressive and strangest things I've witnessed to watch everything turn to liquid, you know, buildings and cars and boats. It just looked like liquid. That just didn't seem natural. I still to this day felt like somebody was editing it, you know, like making it look that way. I, I I am similarly fascinated in it and I can see that it's a little bit perverse, but I know exactly what you're talking about. The sheer awesome nate power of nature. And again it reminds us, you know, we all think we're masters of the universe, humans, don't we? We think we control the elements. But then something like that happens and you realize we really don't. We really don't. And there's you know, Oliver, there's many, many um defying acts of um, reality that I've experienced in my life 
that I just feel like there's no way, right? But there's so many stories that I believed were not coincidental that sometimes my head goes into that black hole thing, like this is happening again, because there's no way that that could have happened unless it was planned. I mean, and I'm talking about, you know, introductions to people from a time and just, there's so many. And I would say in its whole, like watching the tsunami was just inexplainable, like most defying thing I'd ever seen. But the stories of interactions or things that were like every single solitary thing had to be exactly the way it was for that event to actually occur are probably the strangest things that just seem to be the most baffling to me to this day. Do you think there'll be some like jump in our understanding, our intelligence of the universe in the same way that, you know, a few hundred years ago, we thought the earth was flat. Do you think there'll be that jump in intelligence in the next hundred years that we will understand something so much better than we did now, like the Big Bang Theory, evolution? You know, will there be some uncovered secret that we are completely ignorant about now? Or do you think we pretty much know the lot? No, I think there's a lot more. And I don't think it, I don't think it's intelligence. I think it's a consciousness, and I think that the consciousness needs to shift to another another realm beyond just the small portion of the brain that we use, yeah, because we're just transferring kind of on a cellular level and repeating ourselves just in a different way. While technology is advancing itself, dude, that's such a great point. That is such a great point. There is no correlation between well, there is a correlation. It's a negative correlation between material wealth and happiness. People all, all strive for more materials, but those people with the most materials seem the least happy. I can't. <laughs> it's I, almost yeah, a cliche, but it's right. true. I, I can't speak for any of that or even the definition of happiness. I just know that as a whole, there seems to be a lot of a lot of sadness, you know, across the board. But someone would say, well, that's your perception and that's why you're seeing the world sad. You know, Gandhi, you know, be the, be the change you wish to see in the world. So. Um, I'm in and out of my attitude towards the perceptions of others in the world. And that's, you know, I guess the beauty of being able to, you know, be sober and have the decisions of how I'm going to feel today, or maybe not something, something happens in my life. And I wind up choosing that direction, this interview or this talking and this challenging conversation or input that we have with one another will leave me. And, you know, I will start to repeat things in my head and branch off in the direction of that conversation and start to think something different. But I hope that our consciousness um, changes so that we as, as a human can treat each other, um, all of us, better than, than what I'm seeing right now. You know, I definitely feel, I feel like back in the 80s, we treated better than we do now. But someone might say, someone might say something differently. <laughs> I just, again, I think, I think the electronics and being able to see things all the time and always on plays kind of a bigger role because if I was in the cabin in New York on 30 acres of land and not going out to the universe, my world would look pretty happy. And that would be a pretty shallow kind of selfish idea as to what I thought the world was. But hey, my world is happy. I'm chopping down trees and, and uh, in a wood stove and growing my own basil and tomatoes in the forest here, you know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But what's really going on out there? Yeah, so true. Dude, um, It's I've taken an hour and a half of your time already. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I feel that we could carry on talking ad infinitum. But I just want to thank you again for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. All I can tell you is I love you, big guy. Oliver, you're, you're a blessing in my life. And it's one of those defying things that have happened in my life where I know 
for as long as I'm around, as long as I'm above the ground, uh, you are going to be a close person in my life that inspires me, drives me, makes me laugh, and gives purpose because uh, you're a wonderful human being that's made me feel full and complete and freaky as I am. And to feel that kind of acceptance from someone of your peer and, and your type, it just it feels good and it fills me up. So thank you very much. Oh, my God. The check's in the post. <laughs> love you, brother. Take care. Thank you. I love you too, big guy. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, Take you it easy. Hey, chin Bye. up. Chin up, smile on, sit down. All right? <laughs> Bye-bye. Tits and teeth, darling. Tits and teeth. Tits to the teeth. Yeah. <laughs> the natural high. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone. <laughs>